At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. This week, um, we'll, we'll kind of go one more week next week uh, in this same paragraph. We, we actually were aware. Uh, here's what we need to know uh, about James, uh, just to do stuff, to, to get to work. Uh, if you remember in the very first chapter, he, when he says to be doers of the word. And true religion is to visit widows and orphans. Again, that, that action. He wants us to take what it is that we believe and put it into practice. Not just say that we adhere to Christianity or say that we believe in Jesus. We need to do that, but we also need to back that up with works, a life that reflects true faith. This is what James has been getting after again and again and again. And so that's moving on to chapter three. He tells us that we need to tame our tongue in chapter four. He tells us that we need to submit to God, bringing us to chapter five, where yet again in chapter five, he has been calling us to action. And there's a particular action in which uh, James is calling us to in this. As a matter of fact, he is calling us to pray. Somebody say pray. pray. He, he is going to call us, if you're taking notes, that Christians are a praying community. Christians are a praying community. That is, that is who we are. Next week, we're going to see that Christians are a redeeming community, but that's next, next week. This week is, is Christians are a praying community. And so I want to ask us this morning, how seriously, how seriously do you take prayer? So like on a scale of one to 10, how would you, how would you rate yourself? Uh, uh, one being, I don't really think prayer works, or I, I think prayer is kind of useless. The 10 being, I need prayer to live. Where would you rate yourself this morning? How dependent are you on prayer? If you had to fill in this blank, could you honestly say, I cannot function without prayer? Or would it be, I cannot function without coffee? Help me today, somebody. <laughs> so, so, so on a scale of I cannot function without prayer to I cannot function without coffee. Or, or how about may, maybe you've been kind of walking around the house and you're like, man, where, where's my phone at? And, and then from that point on, everything else in your life gets put on hold until you find that phone because you cannot function. I, I just I wonder what would happen to us, church family, if we were to take away those two things. If we were to take away all of your coffee and your phone, how would you function? <laughs> Probably, probably not very good. Now, now, in the same vein, can we say that same thing if we were to remove every aspect of your prayer life, what would happen to you? So I, I'm going to move on because that's too painful to talk about. But again, can we just imagine what would happen? So, so let me go ahead and just give us... Give us the outline. If you, if you are an outline person, you, you like outlines. You, you, y'all are not going to believe this. I have three points in my outline today. I mean, this, listen, they're not alliterated, so calm down, okay? But I do, I do have three points. So let me go ahead and give you the outline today. Here's what we're going to see. First, a call to the believer to pray and praise. So in, in, that, in this beginning section, as, as we look at uh, 13, we're going to be focusing on 13 through 18 today. We're going to see a, a call to the believer to pray and praise. Second point in our outline today is this, call to the elders to pray for those in need. Is anyone sick? Call for the elders of the church to come and 
and pray over them, anointing them with oil. And then third point in our outline today is this, a call to the congregation to pray for each other. So a call to the individual members of the church to be a prayerful people. Second, we're going to see a call to the elders to pray over those in need. And then thirdly, a call for the entire congregation to be praying for each other. Every single verse in our text today, 13 through 18, every single verse mentions prayer. He's, he's going to talk about prayer in every single verse all the way throughout. So let's go ahead and dive in today. We're starting in verse 13. Here we go. Y'all ready? Get the text out in front of you. I want you to follow along with me in the text so that you can make sure I'm not making it up as I go. Here we go. Verse 13 says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So first we see this call to a believer to pray and to pray. So, so he says, Is anyone among you suffering? James has been repeatedly talking about suffering all throughout this letter, he's been saying, hey, we're going to suffer. This is the, God never promises a life of comfort and ease. Never, not once, go ahead and read the whole Bible. You will never find a promise from God to where he tells you everything's going to go okay. You, there, there's not going to be any pain. There's not going to be any discomfort in your life. God never promises that. As a matter of fact, he promises the exact opposite. Jesus says, if they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you. It, just like I have had trouble in this world, so you will have trouble in this world. Now, he also follows that up with this amazing promise, but I have overcome the world. But, but the, the point is, is that there is going to be suffering. The truth is, church family, make no mistake, we are called to imitate and follow Jesus, who was known as a man of sorrows, the man who was betrayed and abandoned by those closest to him, the man who endured a Roman scourging and carried a cross to his own place of execution. He is the one who we are called to imitate and to follow in this life, there will be suffering. So he says, is anyone among you suffering? This is physical suffering, for sure. He's going to talk about prayer and healing. Could be emotional suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Then what he calls us to do is let him pray, <laughs> right? It's, it's almost like, is anyone among you suffering? Let him complain, right? <laughs> We're more comfortable with that answer. Is anyone among you suffering? Make sure that that person lets everybody else know how terrible it is, right? This is what we feel like we want him to say. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, blame it on somebody you already don't like. Instead, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Then he follows it up with this. Is anyone among you cheerful? See, we're glad that at least some people in the churches he was writing to was having an okay time. So he says, are some of you suffering? Let them pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. So he gives two situations that we face and tells us to do the two things that we are very, very unlikely to do. The first one being when we suffer, to turn that into prayer. And then when things are going well, turn that into praise. It's the exact two things that every single one of us struggle with. James is calling us to live out the Christian life when things are difficult and when things are good. In both situations, when we're suffering or when things are good, God is inviting us in both of those situations to himself. Do you, do you see that? That's why he's calling us to pray when things are difficult and to praise when things are, are lovely and beautiful. And in both of those situations, God is saying, come to me. Come to me. If, you, if you're taking notes, when we go through difficult situations, that is God's invitation to draw near to him. 
When, when the pressure's on, when the relationship is difficult, when you're experiencing financial difficulty, when you're experiencing sickness, that's God's invitation to draw you into himself instead of complaining, instead of deconstructing your faith, instead of leaving the church, instead of, instead of blaming other people. That is God's invitation drawing you into himself. You see, prayer in suffering, acknowledges that God has the power to deliver us from that suffering, that he has the power to use that suffering for our good and his glory, that he has the power to bless others through our suffering. That's what prayer does in the midst of that suffering. In addition, when we pray in times of joy and gladness, it acknowledges that he is the source of the goodness. That, that's why he says, is anyone cheerful? Sing praise. Why? Because God is the source of that cheerfulness. God is the source of the joy. God is the source of all things good in our life. So in suffering, he calls us to pray. And when we're cheerful, he calls us to praise. Again, isn't, isn't what James is doing just calling us to model our Lord Jesus? When the pressure was on, when things were difficult, when we see Jesus going into deep times of prayer, I mean, just remember the garden right before he's executed. He, he's under pressure. He's suffering, and it actually draws him to the Father instead of drawing him away from the Father, and he goes into that deep time of prayer. Listen to what he says next. He says, anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of of the Lord. Now, the scenario here, if you'll look at it, it says, and let them pray over him. We use that term pretty regularly, like to, to pray over somebody. Oh, yeah, come on, brother, we want to pray over you. That's actually not a very common term in the New Testament at all. As a matter of fact, it's only found here in, in the Greek. And so the, what, what this is pointing at is a type of scenario where somebody is actually bedridden, and they, and they have to get the elders to actually take the, the church representatives to go to that person who is bedridden and actually pray over them. Um, that, that is, that's what's happening here in this situation. So it says, anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders. Now, who, who are the elders? Well, this word in this context isn't referring to the people in the church that are older, Rather, this is referring to a particular office that is the office of elder. If you're taking notes, elders are a godly group of men who lead the church. You need to know this about the New Testament. The New Testament uses the word pastor, elder, shepherd, and overseer interchangeably. Okay, so pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer. Those words are used in the New Testament interchangeably, and they all refer to one office, that is the office of elder, we commonly use the word pastor. So what he's saying here is that they should call for the elders to pray. So elders are, again, a group of godly men who lead the church. Let's just talk about that for a moment because I, I believe this is incredibly important for us to know and understand uh, in the life of the church. So elders are a group of godly men who lead the church. So elders are to be godly. What do I mean? I mean that their life is in accordance with 1 Timothy 3. Anybody know 1 Timothy 3? 1 Timothy 3 begins with uh, anyone who desires to be the office of overseer must be above reproach. Now, it doesn't mean that he needs to be perfect. Amen? If, if you are looking for a perfect pastor, you've come to the wrong church. Okay? But what it is calling elders to be is above reproach, meaning this. If you followed that man around, you would not be shocked to find out he's a believer. 
It would be obvious from his life that he loves the Lord, that he follows God, that he's doing everything that, that he can in his power to obey everything that God has commanded. So elders are to be godly. In addition, it's to be a group. That, that's why, just look right here in the text. It says, call for the elders, plural, meaning that in the church structure, there should never be one man at the top that holds all the power in the church. That seat's already taken. His name is Jesus. So under Jesus, then, there should be a group of men uh, who share equal authority and responsibility within the church that can hold one another accountable. Again, they hold equal authority in the church, um, and, and so they are to be a group of godly men. In addition, it's men. So while men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth, they are distinct in roles. The Bible is clear that men should lead in the home and lead in the church. And so elders, again, are a group of godly men who lead the church. They lead the church, meaning they communicate the vision, they set the direction for the church, they provide Bible teaching and care for the people. And listen, the people then respond by following the leadership of the elders and holding the elders accountable to live a 1 Timothy 3 lifestyle. Meaning this, if, if I am not above reproach, if I'm not obeying walking in 1 Timothy 3, then the congregation should hold the elders accountable, should hold me accountable, amen? That, that, that's how it works. The elders lead, the people follow, and they hold the leadership accountable. This is how the church should function. So what he's calling for here then is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Now, now, this was the interesting question that I was thinking about this week as I was looking at this. Why does James tell the congregation to call for the elders to pray? Why not call for someone in the church that has the gift of healing? Wouldn't that make more sense? If somebody is sick, who has the gift of healing, right? So uh, if, if, who was here with us when we went through uh, 1 Corinthians, right? We spent a significant amount of time in chapters 13, or 12, 13, and 14, which specifically cover uh, spiritual gifts. We talked about the gift of, of, of healing, the, the gift of tongue. We, we, we went all the way down that road. So if, uh, we're going to move through this section quickly because this whole thing isn't about healing. It's actually about prayer. Uh, but he is talking about it, so we need to discuss it just for a moment. So the question is, why not call for someone that has the gift of healing? Well, because of this. The New Testament never talks about a healer in the church. It, it, the New Testament does not refer to someone in the church that is a, a healer. It, it does not say that someone has the gift of healing. If you're taking notes, the Bible does not teach that there are people in the church who can heal someone at will. The Bible does not teach that. It does not teach that someone possesses the gift of healing and then they can go and whenever they want to lay hands on someone and heal them. That's not how the New Testament talks about the gift of healing. Here is an example. I have the gift of teaching. I'm doing it right now, right? I, I, can, I can employ this gift that God has given me whenever I want. The gift of healings does not work the same way. It's, it's, totally, it's totally different. It's not a gift that you can use at will. God chooses when he will and will not heal someone. God chooses whom he will use to carry out this task, or he might not carry out the task at all. It is all for his purposes. So we cannot say with certainty that when this particular person prays that they will be healed, but he does tell us to pray for healing. Does that make sense? Y'all follow me? Yes. So why call the elders? 
if you're taking notes, why call the elders? The elders in the church should take the lead when it comes to desiring and utilizing spiritual gifts. Okay? The elders in the church should be the ones taking the lead when it comes to desiring and utilizing spiritual gifts. If you, again, if you were with us in that series that we did through 1 uh, Corinthians, you'll know that we are proudly reformed in our soteriology, meaning we believe God saves. From beginning to end, God saves. In addition, we are proudly charismatic, believing that the gifts are still in use today. We believe in the gifts, the spiritual gifts, namely the miraculous spiritual gifts of uh, speaking in tongues, prophecy, uh, healing, interpretation of tongues. Uh, all of those type of spiritual gifts we believe are in use and should be in use in the New Testament church today. And so it should be the elders in the church who are desiring and utilizing those spiritual gifts. Just listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 30 through 31. It says, do all possess gifts of healing? Notice there, he doesn't say the gift of healing. It, it is gifts of healing. Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Listen to this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, all of my Baptist friends in the room are getting real nervous talking about speaking in tongues and healing and all kind of stuff. Lord knows when the snakes are going to come out, right? So just calm down. We, th this is telling us that we should desire spiritual gifts, and among everyone in the church, it should be the elders who are desiring those spiritual gifts the most. Or listen to 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Again, we went at length, talking about how these gifts are to be utilized in the church. Go back and listen to that series if you're interested in that. My point here is that the Bible tells us to desire spiritual gifts, which makes all my charismatic friends very excited. We're to desire spiritual gifts, and that command is especially for the elders of, of the church. The elders should be doing this absolutely most. In addition, if you're taking notes, the elders are the ones in the church that should be walking closely with the Spirit so that they become most likely candidates to receive that spiritual gift. So why call for the elders? Well, first, because the elders should be desiring the spiritual gifts out of everybody in the church. In addition, shouldn't it be the elders that are fervent in prayer? going deep into the word, having serious time with the Lord, doing everything that they can to make sure their life is above reproach, obeying God. And shouldn't that type of person be the one that the Holy Spirit would choose to use in, in a gift of healing? D does that make sense? Like it, it makes sense what James is calling us to, to call for the elders in the church. In addition, God intends that in some circumstances, the elders are to be the channel for God's blessing. So what he calls them to do, if anyone among you is sick, call for the elders. We've explained why they should call for the elders. And then it says that they should anoint them with oil. Again, my Baptist friends getting real nervous, charismatic friends are real excited about this, the anointing with oil. What, why does he tell them to anoint with oil? What's the deal with that? Well, some, some commentators on this particular verse said that this oil was medicinal. So it's, this person is sick. And so the elders kind of are, are praying, but then they're applying medicine. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, who remembers that story? The, the guy is, is beaten up by robbers. The, 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 the priest and the Levite pass him by, but then the Good Samaritan comes along, and he binds up his wounds. Do you remember with what? With wine and oil. That it, it was used for medicinal purposes, and so they see this here. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. The elders are going to anoint with oil. 
So some commentators have said that this was medicinal. <clears throat> Others have said that this is actually sacramental, that this is, uh, the, the putting on of oil is a sacrament for those uh, who are about to die. Well, I was just going to go ahead and tell you neither of those are right. Uh, I, at least I don't think so. I, I don't think it has anything to do with medicine. I don't think it has anything to do with being a sacramental right before they die because the content here that the text is actually saying to pray for them so they'd be raised up, not before they, not before they die. So in, in the Bible, anointing with oil is a sign of setting someone apart. Can you remember all those Old Testament stories where they were choosing a king or selecting a prophet or whatever, and they would set this person aside and they would anoint them with oil and ask to receive a special or particular blessing from God. And so the reason that we at Gospel Community Church actually practice this, I don't know if you know that, but right in the back, on those back tables, there's actually oil. There's nothing fancy about it. It came from a bottle from the store, okay? There's nothing magical about the oil, but anointing with oil is a symbolic act that shows that we are setting you apart to receive a special blessing from God. So if you come to me and you're sick or you need help or there's something going on in your life, uh, we will pray, the elders of this church will pray over you and we will anoint you with oil because we want to obey James. Amen? We want to obey the Bible. So that's, that's the deal with the anointing with oil. Let's move on to verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, again, this, this verse, it, if you're not careful with it, you, you can really take it out of context, okay? So let, let's carefully look at exactly what James is saying here. Let's begin by asking this question. Is it God's will to heal every single person? No, it's not. Uh, think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, I mean, if anybody's going to receive a healing from God, it's the Apostle Paul. I mean, the guy writes the majority of the New Testament, okay? Like, he, you know, he went to the third heavens and, like, all kind of stuff that we, we're not going to experience. But what happens is Paul says that he has this thorn in his flesh and that he prayed for God to heal him on multiple occasions and God doesn't heal him. So it's not God's will to heal every time. I would venture to say that many of you have actually laid hands on someone and prayed for them to be healed and they haven't been healed. So it's not God's will to heal every single time. We, we know that. In addition, it does not say that every time the elders pray that it is effective. That's not what James is saying here. So again, you can, you can get confused because of verse 14. He says, call for the elders to pray. And then it says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So it's like, dang, James, are you, are you saying that every time the elders pray over somebody, they're going to be healed? Well, no, that's, don't get confused. That's not what he's saying at all. As a matter of fact, we have to answer the question, what is the prayer of faith? Do you see that in 15? Look at it. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So what is the prayer of faith? Here's the problem with trying to answer the question, what is the prayer of faith? James doesn't tell us. <laughs> In, in James' fashion, he just throws it out there and moves along. He doesn't answer the question that, that's on all of our minds, James. What is the prayer of faith? So what James assumes is that you already know what the prayer of faith is. So what we have to do is go back and look at other texts to help us discover what the prayer of faith is. Can we do that, church family? Yeah. Let's go ahead and, and look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9 to help us understand 
what this prayer of faith is, and then I'll come back and give you the definition. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit. Here, uh, the Apostle Paul is giving a list of spiritual gifts. Some people are given this gift. Some people are given this gift. And he says some people are given the gift of faith. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, it's not the gift of saving faith. Why? Because they're already saved. The, the people that he's speaking to have already been given the gift of saving faith. This is a different gift of faith. Here's the definition if you're taking notes. The prayer of faith is the spirit-given assurance that God will act, intervene, or work in a particular situation. The prayer of faith is the spirit-given assurance that God will act, intervene, or work in a particular situation. Meaning this, there's somebody that is sick, and you begin to lay hands on them and pray for them. And all of a sudden, deep in your soul, you begin to really believe that the Spirit comes upon you in a particular way, and in your heart, your heart says, because your Spirit is speaking, God is going to heal this person. And you become overwhelmed with faith that that is really going to happen, and then God heals that person. That is the prayer of faith. Listen to the way that Jesus talks about this in Mark eleven twenty three. Truly, I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. Now, pause right there. How in the world? <laughs> I mean, maybe y'all got some kind of faith that I don't got. But how in the world can you pray that a mountain is going to be thrown into the sea and truly believe it in your heart? Well, that would be a supernatural act of God in you, right? That would be then the prayer of faith. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So again, what does Jesus mean here? He means that God may grant a deep abiding assurance given by the Holy Spirit that God is going to do a particular thing. Let me just give you uh, an example from, from my life. This has happened to me uh, one time, and I do not share this to like show how spiritual I am. I, I, I sh really, like it was me and my wife, and my wife was way more spiritual than me. So, so here's what happened to us. Uh, we had a, a close family friend that uh, was told that she was going to be unable to have children. Uh, it was heartbreaking for them. Um, they, they, I mean, it was, it was crushing for this couple that we knew. They were very close to us. You're, you're not going to be able to have kids. And so we laid hands on them and prayed for them. And my wife and I got this overwhelming sense that God was going to act, that God was going to do something. And so in faith, we went to the store and we bought uh, a baby blanket and we wrapped it and gave it to this couple. And we prayed for them again and said, we really believe. I, I, I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know how to communicate this to you, but we believe God is going to heal you. And so as an act of faith, here, here's this gift, and we prayed for them. And by God's grace, months later, they conceived. So the prayer of faith, again, 
is when the Holy Spirit overwhelms you in such a way that you really believe God is going to act. Does this happen every time? Well, no, certainly not. But in this case, what verse 15 is saying, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And listen, if you missed all that stuff about the prayer of faith and, and healing and all this, look, just look at what it says. And the Lord will raise him up. That's, that's the point. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So why does James then include in verse 15 that his sins will be forgiven? Well, apparently there is some sort of connection between sickness and sin. Now stay with me because there is a narrow road that we need to go down and we need not fall in the ditch on either side, okay? There is a connection between sin and sickness. The problem is we're tempted to fall into one side or the other. So one side says uh, that sickness has no connection with sin at all whatsoever, that's falling in the ditch on this side. The other side says, if you get a cold, it's because you didn't tithe, right? So what, what we need to do is make sure we don't fall in the ditch on this side of the road or this side of, of the road because there is a relationship between sickness and sin, but we, but we need to be prayerful and careful as we talk about this. Remember when Jesus was walking with the disciples and they saw a blind man at the gate? This is John chapter 9. They saw the blind man at the gate. And Do you remember the question the disciples asked? Why is this man blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus, neither. It's so that God may be glorified, okay? And the apostle Paul warns the Corinthian church about taking communion improperly. And he says, some of you are taking communion improperly and you got sick and some of you have died. In addition, when Jesus heals the man by the pool of Siloam, he says, you're healed. Now go and sin no more so that something worse may not happen to you. So there is a relationship between sickness and sin. If you're taking notes, all sickness is a result of sin because of the fall of creation. In addition, it is possible that sickness can be a result of sin. Again, think about sickness that comes from overeating sickness that comes from overconsumption of drugs and alcohol, tobacco use, etc. But we cannot assume that every time you get a cold, it's because you didn't tithe. Okay, so let's make sure we're not falling into the ditch on either side of this road. So apparently what's happening here is that someone is bedridden. They've called for the elders of the church to come and pray over them, anoint him with oil. And God, this person is, in addition, confessing sin and is being forgiven. And God will raise them up. Okay, third point in our outline, if you remember now, we, we just saw a call to everyone or a call to individuals to pray, a call to the elders to pray. Third point in our outline is this, a call to the congregation to pray for each other. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Church family, I wonder if you have the type of relationship with someone else in this congregation where you regularly confess sin. Are you hiding? Are you guarded? Are you closing people out of your life so that they don't know what's really going on? This text is calling us to be a weird and radical people. Do you see this? This is, this is calling us to the type of relationships where we get rid of our pride and we acknowledge who we are before God. Sinners, broken, 
weak. We do not have it together, church family. This has got to be a church to where it's okay not to be okay, and it's also not okay to stay that way. Amen? And so we've got to begin to form and bond these type of relationships to where you can go to your brother or sister in Christ and say, I am being so tempted right now to click on this website. I want to do it so bad, but I know it can destroy my marriage and my relationship. Would you please pray for me? Please help me. We've got to be the type of people that are able to get on the gut level and tell other brothers and sisters in Christ what's really going on in our lives. Listen, the South does not need another church to where everybody plays nice, nice, and smiles on Sunday morning, yet their lives are in total turmoil and nobody knows. There are plenty of those churches out there. What we need to be is a radical people willing to be humble and willing to say who we are in Christ. We're broken and needy. We are only beggars pointing other beggars where to find bread. That's all that we are. And if that is the truth, then we should be able to confess sins with one another. This is what's really going on. This is where I'm challenged. This is where I'm struggling. This is where I totally went over the line. It's not that I'm struggling with it. I totally did it, and I need Jesus to forgive me. Would you pray for me? Don't you want to be that kind of people, church family? This is what God is calling us to. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. I mean, can you imagine if we actually started doing that? Like, what, what, what type of church we would be if people really said in their community groups, in their DNA groups, really started confessing sin. First, what would happen, this is not my notes, by the way. First, what would happen is that it'd get real uncomfortable. It'd get really weird and really awkward. I wonder wonder if we're spiritually mature enough to handle that or if we would push that person aside and just move, move on quickly so that we don't make a deal about it. I think if we really started confessing sin to one another, it would get really awkward. But what it would do is it would open the door of grace in our lives as that brother confesses sin and you confess sin and you both weep and pray together and ask to be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What's amazing about this is, yes, he is calling for the elders. He said, anybody sick? Call for the elders. But it's not just the elders that are being called to pray. So we're called to pray. If He says, are you suffering? Pray. Pray for yourself. In addition, ask the elders to pray. In addition, we all should be a praying community. We should be praying for one another. Listen to how he ends the, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Your praying has great power. Do you believe that? Okay, one person. George believes it. Now, I think that for that very reason that we don't believe that our prayers are actually that powerful because, listen, what he's saying here in this text, listen to me very carefully. He's saying that if God wills, your prayer is powerful enough to heal somebody. I wonder if you believe that about yourself. I think that James anticipates that you don't, okay, which is exactly why he says what he says in verses 17 and 18. Okay, so again, look at the end of verse 16. He says, the prayer of a righteous person, you think in your mind, well, I'm not very righteous, you know, even though you've been declared righteous in Christ. <laughs> the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He anticipates that you don't believe that, so he gives us verse 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
You, you guys know Elisha? I mean, he, he, he's a big deal. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. That's some powerful praying. If you can pray the rain away, right, you can pray for the rain to come back. I mean, that's, that's seriously powerful prayer. And what he's saying is, look at it, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What, what is his point? He is taking us back to 1 King, and you can is Elijah was a man just like me and you. He prayed and amazing things happened, and you can pray that way too. You see, this, what is so amazing about this text flies in the face of cessationism. But believing that cessationists believe that the gifts are over and done with, and, and, and that most cessationists believe that God performed miracles in three major periods. Are y'all still with me? Yeah. I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, but listen. Cessationists believe that, the, that in the Bible, God performed miracles in three major eras. First, Moses and Joshua. Second, Elijah and Elisha. Third, Christ and the apostles. Other than that, they, they believe that miracles were really far and few between and that there is no reason for God to act in a miraculous way in our lives now, that God limited himself to those three periods and we should not expect that miraculous things should happen from the hand of God now. Well, this text is a crushing blow to those who hold that view. Here is why. The point of this text is for us to reject the idea that Elijah is in a class of his home, that Elijah was so holy and so powerful and so close to God, and that's what made his prayers effective. Yet us lowly, you know, little weakling Christians over here, we could never pray that way. Well, he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Elijah had a nature just like you, and so you can pray with the power of Elijah. That's the whole point of the text, and miraculous things will happen, and including healing somebody. I mean, this is, this is mind-blowing stuff, guys. Do you, do you understand what he's saying about how powerful your prayer can be? Now, the point is that he wants us to take Elijah as a model. This is for men and women in the church, just like Elijah, you may be given the gift of powerful prayer from a powerful God who may choose to heal someone. That's why he's telling us to pray for one another. Pray that you may be healed. Ask the elders to come and pray, and let us be praying for one another. Prayer in every single verse. Well, let me close with a few points of application. First point of application is this. Intentionally designate a time and place to pray. Listen to me. Deep, fervent prayer does not happen by accident. It must be cultivated. Deep and fervent prayer does not happen by accident. Listen, you don't stumble into holiness. You don't stumble into sanctification. This this is a type of thing that needs to be cultivated in our lives. Prayer needs to be cultivated. And so what you need to do is to designate a specific time and a specific place. Let me just give you a a hint that that I use in my own life. Figure out things that you're already going to be doing and then just make that that time. Meaning this, you've got a 30-minute ride to work. Well, I don't, you, you say to yourself, well, I, I'm not going to listen to podcasts. I'm not going to listen to the radio. I'm not going to, that's it. Every morning when I drive to work, when I sit down in my car seat, my brain goes, it's prayer time. 
right? That, that's a way that you can work that into a natural rhythm that you already have. There you've designated a time every morning when I drive to work. You've designated a place when I sit down in my car, and, and you begin to cultivate that type of prayer life. In addition, you can use things like prayer lists. Uh, my wife and I share a prayer list uh, on, our, on our phones that, that we communicate back and forth with. It's, that, that's an easy way uh, to cultivate that type of of praying. So the call here from the text is to pray, and so we must intentionally designate a time and place to pray. Again, deep, fervent prayer does not happen by accident. Second point of application is this. Call on the elders to pray for you in times of need and use our prayer team every Sunday. Church family, there should be a line in the back of this auditorium every single Sunday. And there's not, and that's a problem. So if, if you're new here, you don't know. Here's what we do every single Sunday. I preach. Then what happens is we go into a time of response. And in that response time, we let you know we have a prayer team in the back, people who are willing to pray for you. The elders are in the back. There's a prayer team in the back. And we call you to pray. And to our shame, church family, there are next to zero people that go back. Now, listen, I'm the pastor of this church, so I'm going to own that. What I, what I see there is a point of spiritual immaturity that we need to grow in. And so as the pastor, I'm going to own that first by acknowledging it. The reason that I think that, that it is, uh, well, there's probably a couple reasons. First, um, pride. It's probably the first reason. The reason people don't, it's, it's not like y'all don't need prayer, amen? It, it's not like I don't need prayer. And so what I'm seeing is probably a bit of pride. You're not willing to go back and receive prayer. You're not willing to stand up and go back and tell somebody what's really going on and get prayer for it. So I think it's a point of pride that we as a congregation, myself included, need to work on. We need to grow in this because I see that as a sign of spiritual immaturity. I think another point is maybe we don't know when to go back. So I just told you we do that during the response time. <clears throat> but what I mean is we only go back to receive prayer when, when it's blown up, when something's on fire, instead of just getting into a regular rhythm of here are, here are, like, here's what's going on. Like it, it hasn't blown up yet. It's not on fire, but I'm real anxious about it. And you can't, instead of waiting until your marriage is blown up, your finances, like it's a total disaster, and you come crawling back to the prayer team it just in total shambles, why not go back before then? Why not go back and receive prayer and ask for help before it's a total disaster, right? This is my challenge to us, church family. There, there should be a line of people in the back waiting to receive prayer, and, and it's not, and I think that's a problem, and I think it's something that we need to address as a church family. It's, it's something that we need to grow in, again, myself, myself included. Thirdly, third point of application, Cultivate deep relationships with other members of this church for the purpose of prayer. If you're a member here, when you signed your membership covenant, uh, you signed a, a membership covenant which says you promise to be, and what we say in the membership covenant is steady state community. What does that mean? That means you're involved. That means you're plugged in. That means you're a part of the church. That means that people know you and you really know other people. That means that people know what's going on in your life, and you know what's going on in their life. 
And so what we must do is cultivate those type of deep relationships. If you're interested uh, in membership, this is my shameless plug. If you're interested in membership in January, we're going to be having membership classes. I think of anything we've learned from this text, uh, not only about prayer, but this is all happening in the context of a local church body that has covenanted together to pray for one another and have the elders that are their elders, their pastors that they've covenanted with, come pray for them. So if anything, this text is teaching us we need to be members of a, of a local church, and those classes are coming in January. Church family, what we need to do then is to look to our great example. We need to look to our great example, amen? That, that is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who actually taught us Jesus taught us to pray. Do you remember? Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We need to look to Jesus. If the call is we need to pray and be a praying people, we need to look to our great example, Jesus, who actually taught us to pray. Or look to our great example, Jesus, who prayed for Peter. Peter, the one who would soon deny him. Listen to Luke twenty-two thirty-one. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. This is Jesus saying this to Simon Peter. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Let us look to our great example, Jesus, who prayed for us. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? Do you, do you know that? Look at, look at John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only. He, he was praying for his disciples, the, the 12, but then he begins to pray for us in what's known as the high priestly prayer. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You, if you're a Christian here this morning, you have believed in Jesus through the word of the apostles, through his word. And so this prayer right here is for you. Jesus prayed for you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. In one of the most divided times in our country, in our history, Jesus prayed that we will be one. He prayed that we would be united in him, united in him in the gospel, just as you, Father, and I are one, I in you, that they may also, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Church family, even Jesus' last words on the cross was a prayer. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So if the call today from the text is to be a praying people, we need to look to our great example, Jesus, who taught us to pray and prayed for us. So maybe look to our Lord Jesus as our great example and be transformed into a praying community. Let's pray now. Lord, we thank you for this powerful text, this text that calls us to pray, this text that calls us to be a people of prayer. Lord, may we be able to truly say, I cannot function without prayer. I can leave the, the coffee and the iPhone behind. I'm, I am more dependent on prayer than I am those things of the world. May we be a praying people. Lord, may we be the type of people who depend on prayer, depend on the prayers of other brothers and sisters in Christ, depend on the prayers of our pastors, because we know how desperate we are and how much we need you. Make it so, make it true of the people of Gospel Community Church. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, 
share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.